Comms check, radio check, one, two, three, radio check, one, two, three. Welcome. You are listening to the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies that no one else wants to talk about. And my name is Randy. And my name is Jakob. And today, this is a very special episode that we are bringing to you. This is episode 154.5. I think that's what we're calling it. Um, And as you know, in 2023, we set upon a very special journey, a Soderbergh journey. And today we're going to wrap up that trek, uh, tying it up with a giant bow. And maybe we'll revisit him in the future if he releases some more films. But as of today, we will have seen all of his feature films uh, and talked about them all. So anyway, Actually. this is what today's mission is. Yes, sir. Do we want to commit to something in here? As in like whenever he does release... A film do we want to release a special episode or uh do we yeah we haven't really discussed it like no. formally anyway so it's just like spitballing here do we no, want to also- commit to anything like do we want to commit to like whenever david lynch just pulls his finger out <laughs> do we should, should we just immediately review it and put it on the patreon or just put it on the main show and just i don't know just to add it to the marathon like should we actually just have a rule for all the sort of directors that we have completed we probably could. Bodies of work. We, we might as well, um, because right now... Like Brandon Lee, I don't know if he does, does another one. <laughs> <laughs> because right now we have uh, talked about the cinematic careers of uh, dead artists and ones in their 60s. So, and 70s. And 70s. So it, we're not necessarily signing up for you know a, a huge roster of work. So... Sure, I'm okay. Let's make that rule. So here we are, uh, <laughs> live coming up with that rule that uh, upon the we're release gonna be, of a new Grinch, or okay, <laughs> there's gonna be like, probably like two Soderberghs a year <laughs> at this point. <laughs> see, but but who knows? Like miniseries won't count, so it'll we'll yep. we'll have to see because um, maybe he's found his retirement home. <laughs> he's just found like miniseries. App-based miniseries, choose your own adventure nonsense. (laughs) So, anyway, um, yeah, uh, sure. Let's let's make it a soft rule right now that we'll squeeze them in. So that is to say, if we get another uh, Spike Lee, Catherine Bigelow, David Lynch, or Steven Soderbergh, then we'll try to find we'll try to find room for it. Totally down for that. All right, have a few announcements. Uh, I'm going to try to largely keep things Soderbergh uh, focused, but we'll quickly cover a little bit of what's going on. And it's the beginning of 2024. So there's a bunch of things just to remind people of, I suppose, and to uh, mention in terms of things that are coming up. So our final deep cut Soderbergh was released just a few days ago. That was Kimmy. I'm here. And we released on Patreon Magic Mike's Last Crusade. (laughs) Magic Mike's I Know What You Did Last Summer, Magic Mike's Last Dance. So that that was our final shallow cut. 
Um, and so by the end of the t- uh, by the end of today, we will have covered the man's 34 feature films plus Eros. <laughs> God help us. <laughs> Uh, so, and for any statisticians out there or actuaries or people who are really sort of crunching the numbers on this, we're counting Che in that count as just one film. So on our main show in 2024, by the way, we're continuing our, uh, sort of our structure of doing monthly themes. So we will have, uh, weekly releases around a monthly theme. There'll be a bit of a twist, uh, but we're sticking to the idea of the monthly themes after our first week of the month Soderbergh shenanigans our January theme will become so next week uh, Liam Neeson's planes trains and automobiles oh it's uh, this week actually right yeah I suppose it, it's our next episode but it's in a few days time uh, on our Patreon we will be continuing with three episodes per month I mentioned Magic Mike's Last Dance our tie-in connecting to the Neeson thrillers in a couple weeks time will be taken or possibly next week Anyway, in the near future, we will be talking about Taken on our Patreon, uh, and we're mm-hmm. starting a new marathon in 2024 to replace the Cassavetes Marathon that we very lovingly and uh, proudly finished last month. We will be talking about the first film in our almost year-long Catherine Bigelow Marathon. We'll be talking at the end of this month about The Loveless. Also, After today, as I mentioned, Soderbergh will be totally in the can, at least until he has another film come out. Uh, So we are going to be following that in a similar way to in a similar way to how we did Soderbergh, where we did the big films on Patreon. We did the smaller films on the main show. We're going to be talking about the cinema of the one and only Spike Lee. We'll discuss his major joints on Patreon and his smaller joints here on the main show. You can find our Patreon musings at patreon.com slash uncutgemspod. As you know, you can find our main show everywhere where you get your podcast. You're listening to it now, for instance, on our and our online headquarters. <laughs> and our online headquarters yeah. is at uncutgemspodcast.com. So today we are completing our Soderbergh Marathon by covering the final two feature films of his that we skipped along the way uh, through his filmography that began with episode 89 where we talked about out of sight and then we decided hmm, we should do this for a whole year and we did all of 2023 and january 2024 uh we covered all of his feature films except the two that we're talking about today and i sort of consider these two to be cinematic siblings of sorts so we're going to do them uh and they're soderbergh's two films with actor writer monologist i presume that's how you say it Spalding Gray. So 1996's Gray's Anatomy. Manganello, actually, not a monologist. I know. Actor, writer, Manganello. And the other of the Spalding Gray films in Soderbergh's catalog is And Everything is Going Fine from 2010. So without any further preamble, we'll get into those Spalding Gray films now. Also, I'd given up drinking alcohol, went cold turkey, just stopped, you know? I mean, after my mother's death, the only religious ritual left in our home was cocktail hour. I mean, what's a day without cocktail hour? Is this one big... Bed. Okay, so a brief background on these films. Grey's Anatomy is a 1996 film, and... 
Actually, you know what? I'm going to scroll down my notes here. I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about Spalding Gray because I don't necessarily have a, a lot of background with him. So maybe we'll start with him and then I'll sort of go through my quick notes on, on each of the films, which are quick. And please, everyone, just sort of bear with me. My notes are all over the place for this one. Um, so Spalding Gray was a well-known performer from the world of theater. He was renowned for his uh, witty and introspective musings, his one-man shows. He gained prominence with works like Swimming to Cambodia and the stage show of Gray's Anatomy. His performances often delivered were often delivered from a very simple set, usually just a chair or a desk in a chair or a table in a chair. Uh, and in these monologues, he would explore his personal experiences and he would blend in humor and sometimes some uh, profound insights. Gray had a unique storytelling style. He combined personal accounts with theatricality in his performance, and this resonated with audiences and, and earned him quite a bit of acclaim, actually, in the 70s and 80s. His work is a huge influence on contemporaries in theater, especially in the one-man show genre. Um, Spalding Gray grew up in Rhode Island. He had two brothers. His mom suffered from depression, and his family dynamic was the source of a lot of his material. His mom actually committed suicide in 1967 when Spalding Gray was a young man. I think he was 25 or 26. Um, and it seems, I don't know, but it seems as if life and death, um, mortality were sort of regular themes in, in his work, at least from what I gather and watching the two films that we watched. He was also a stage and film actor in a more traditional sense in the 1970s and 80s. He did a porn film, apparently. Uh, it's called The Farmer's Daughters. And at the end of the 1970s, he helped form the theater group uh, called Performance Group. And he was a co-founder of that along with Willem Dafoe. Spalding, Spalding Gray died in 2004. He committed suicide. Um, he, he'd not been feeling well physically. Physically, he had... He'd had some rough times after a car accident a couple years prior. So anyway, there's that. Um, probably also worth mentioning, too, that Soderbergh did work very early on in Soderbergh's career with Spalding Gray in the film uh, King of the Hill. So we did briefly talk about Spalding Gray in the context of that film back in February of 2023. So now the two films that... Spalding Gray's is the subject of that uh, were directed by Soderbergh. The first one is Gray's Anatomy. It was released in 1996. And I guess I want to say that it's it's really a it's a theater film. It's 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 Spalding Gray's uh, stage show, Gray's Anatomy. And Soderbergh brings it to uh, brings it to uh, film. But it's still basically his stage show. It was written by Spalding Gray directed by Soderbergh. Actually, sorry, it was also co-written by Spalding Gray's first wife, uh, Renee Shafransky. And this is a film that Soderbergh did not do the cinematography for. Uh, Elliot Davis did the cinematography. And Susan Littenberg, she edited the film. She actually edited both of the Spalding Gray films. Cliff Martinez, Soderbergh regular, he did the music for this. Mm -hmm. um, and Gray's Anatomy is, is basically an 80-minute on stage performance of, of Spalding Gray. It's a concert film of sorts, we'll call it. And at the time, I believe this was Soderbergh's fourth film. And the whole idea of the film is largely revolves around Spalding Gray talking about his diagnosis 
with a macular pucker in his left eye, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And then in 2010, uh, Steven Soderbergh uh, directed And Everything is Going Fine, which really is a video compilation documentary of Spalding Gray's life. Soderbergh did not shoot anything new. There is no cinematographer credit on on this. This is a compilation of uh, recordings of Spalding Gray's various performances and interviews from uh, personal video cameras and also from media appearances. So it's, it's a compilation. And this compilation, in essence, um, gives us a sense of Spalding Gray, his his career, his family, his life as a youngster to a point, um, and then his his later years. So that's and everything is going fine. Okay, and that's basically what we're looking at with these two films. So I, I sort of figured because we've got the same subject in both, we'll treat this episode a little bit differently. Then other episodes, like other double episodes, we'll sort of spend a little bit of time talking about one film and then we'll stop, hard stop, move on to the second film. So I I wonder if our conversation here, because these films are so unique and they're around the same subject, if we'll just sort of start talking about Spalding Gray and these films and Soderbergh and just sort of see where it goes from there. So, Jakob, do you have any background with Spalding Gray? If so, tell me all about it. What do you think of the man? And then... If not, jump right into telling me what you think of these two films. Wow. I, true. I was wondering, like, ooh, I, I don't, I, I mean, a few, I have questions because I don't know Spalding Gray, like, at all. Okay, I can see that some people really hold him in high regard as in, like, this is amazing. He's doing great stuff and they laugh and laugh and laugh. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I may be just generationally incompatible with this. So I like I totally didn't know who this guy was. I didn't know he was a big deal. And it, like you look, like you scratch at the Wikipedia, and uh, you find out like it was a big, big enough of a deal that he. It's like because like we talk about like Soderbergh's involvement in here. He got Jonathan Demi to 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 direct yes. one of those just like it, yeah. as in Mon- like monster in a box. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So oh, there like are there, four of these. Yeah. There are four of his shows, these monologue one man shows that are are also have a film version. <laughs> yeah. So I, I yeah I don't have any background with it, with him. I don't necessarily know anything about him. So oh, I was coming into this. Um, like really, really blind, so blind in fact that I watched five seasons of Grey's Anatomy before realizing there's no spoiling grade in it. Grade in it. And I have to say, like this show really get gets gets off the ground. Like once, like Max Demia enters the picture, like season three, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so You're watching like, why is, Grey's why is, Anatomy all week why, for this? <laughs> it's like why is why is Randy wanting me to watch this medical drama? <laughs> <laughs> like 190 episodes of it yeah or all, more. 20 se- all 20 seasons of it oh god there's 300 episodes then <laughs> yeah it's like the longest running primetime television series on abc or something like that it it, it hold it has it, it broke records okay 
Yeah. No, I didn't really watch it for for pleasure for for here. It's just like I don't know. Like, is this sort of like an intellectual stand-up comedy, as in like a sit-down monologue? Because I don't, I don't know what how to eat this. Like, I watch this. I don't even know what I whether I watch this or like it goes for both films either, either or, or actually because it's it's essentially like when you mention it's like oh you know like one's a one's a monologue, the other one's a documentary, and the documentary is actually a compilation of the monologues. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the monologue, right? <laughs> but then. Like, I watched this on YouTube, by the way, both of them are on YouTube. So, like, at some point, I was just, like, scrolling through comments, and I think that they were a little bit more pleasurable than the films themselves. So, mm. like, there was this guy, there's this guy in the comments who was just, like, thanking whoever uploaded this 17 years ago, 11 years ago. No, 17 years ago, he someone uploaded this, but then 11 years ago, someone wrote a comment saying, like, ah, oh, I saw it when it came out, and then I want, then I wanted it, so I waited for this to come out on VHS, and I bought it, and I lent it to someone, and I, and I, uh, and and they lost it. So then I waited for this to come out on DVD, and then I didn't learn a lesson, so I lent it out again, and I lost it. But thanks for posting it, because I, otherwise I wouldn't have any any means to watch this. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> what a journey actually, that guy had. Yeah, way more entertaining than Grey's Anatomy, the film. You know, this comment made my day. You know. If if we were doing a top three list for this, the comment would have made my top three. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't I don't know. Like it's not my like I want to say probably it's one of those things with I want I want to say stand up comedy because I think the closest this thing is to stand mm-hmm. to stand up comedy or anything anything else right is that it has like if it doesn't work for you because you're just not. Um, vibing with the comedian and then it's a painful experience because I'm just sitting there like these people are laughing and laughing and uh, and laughing and I'm just sitting there like well I suppose it's not my bag right it's kind of yeah that's kind of where I am with this I don't know how how much further I can stretch this (laughs) (laughs) you're doing not bad (laughs) You're but doing yeah, pretty well. Sp- Spalding Gray is kind of like this of like the the Woody Allen of stand up comedy. Like I don't I don't know what he is. Like he's like when you think about people, like he's like George Carlin. He's a philosopher, and it's just like George Carlin was funny, actually. And I don't find this guy funny. I don't know why. And it's not a generational thing because I find George Carlin funny, and he's older. Yeah. So I don't know yet. something about this guy <laughs> that just doesn't really rock my boat. And it's just, and then there's, and if if it doesn't work, there's nothing else in it because there's this guy, yeah. this, this guy sitting on the stage behind a desk with a piece of paper talking to me. Yeah, totally fair. So for me, I, I'm like you. I didn't, I didn't really know anything about Spalding Gray. I know the name because I know the connection to this, and I'm familiar with Monster in a Box just because that existed as a stage show and a film somewhere. I never saw the film, so I don't know this guy. I think my my first knowing glimpse of him may very well have been when we did King of the Hill. Like if you look through his filmography, I know he's, he's a number of different places and other films and shows that I've, you know, seen, but you know, never, never that he registered, um, watching these films. So, and I'll point out, I have an appreciation, I guess, for Grey's Anatomy because I, I feel I see Soderbergh in this trying to 
jazz up the spoken word. Ultimately, you're right. This is this is almost like a stand up comedy piece, but it's not. It's more of a storytelling, mm-hmm. a storytelling thing, more of a one man show. And I, I love the confidence that this guy has. He just gets out there and sits at his desk and starts telling stories. Now, stand up comedians have to come up with a bit of a character and there's a bit of theatricality, I think, more so in comedians work in terms of connecting. This guy just has sort of a casual conversational flair that I like, but he's not selling any of his humor in by by way of building up to a punchline. I don't feel really that's ever what he's doing. It's it's more of a, a dry wit. It's it's more of Woody Allen without leading into a one liner. Like it's sort of a dry academic wit. So I really like it. I like how this guy is articulate. I like his his confidence and just sort of talking. Like I know sometimes like even when I listen to our podcast and I hear myself and I'm uh 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 so you know you just cringe when you listen to yourself sometimes. <laughs> but but this guy has, you know, a confidence in in his ability to just go through his speeches and I admire that in in people, just like he's very fluid. However, do you want me um, to edit your ums and ahs if you if if you're you know I no to edit I'm, mine out as well because they will stick out even more no no because it's it's something I use to push myself to sort of get better better and smoother and, and slicker and so no uh, I'm all about embracing my my flaws and errors but anyway back to uh, Spalding Gray I like this this shtick and I'm very happy that both these films are like 80 minutes or less it's fantastic. And I started watching one. I forget which one it was. Which one? It was. Uh, it was. Uh, it was. And everything is going fine. Started watching it last week, and I watched the first half of it. And I watched the second half of it on YouTube at one and a quarter speed. <gasps> How dare you? Do you know what this is? This is like the world's weirdest podcast because you don't necessarily even have to watch it. You can just listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it sort of is. Uh, so anyway, I like this and my star ratings will reflect it. But at the same time, because it's just spoken word and it doesn't have the rhythm of a Seinfeld or a master craftsman who's working on his beat as something that he's using to connect with the audience the way a comedian would. Uh, sometimes I forget what he's saying. I'm just sort of along for the ride and I... I, I'm sort of forgetting his little shticks. Like if, if we get into talking about the macular pucker, I forget some of his stories because he's just, he's just rattling on. It's like hanging out with someone that you like to listen to at a party. Um, but then later on, it's like, what was he talking about? Oh, he was really fun to hang out with, but I sort of forget what he was saying. That's how I am a little bit with, with Spalding Gray. Like I, I like this and I admire this, this skill. And the one man show is something that, when I hear locally of a one-man show is coming, Here we my go. my back my back gets up, and I get I sort of hunch over, and my my brow furls, and I'm like, oh, what egotistical individual is is doing that? Because I feel it's sort of a look at me type of thing. But it's someone it, who wants to do theater but doesn't have any friends. 
Right. And I, and I sort of wonder, is the Spalding Gray shtick here is, does he want to do comedy, but he can't remember lines? So he's got all these just sort of little marks and notes in front of him. <laughs> he wants and, to stand up comedy, but he can't, but he really wants to sit down. Ex- exactly. And I think Before he's got his accident, mind you, because after the accident, I assume, like, I suppose you're excused. Enough. Okay. Because yeah. his hip, because he had a broken hip after yeah. this. Fair among enough. Other things. There was, um, and I, I, can't remember lines like I would have loved to done more acting because I can't I, I just I can't memorize lines and I'm just always paranoid that I'll mess up a cue and uh, so anyway like so any of the acting I've ever done is is largely it's been improv and uh, I was asked once to perform in a variety show because people thought it was amusing and I was like oh my god like comedy yeah you'd be funny and because I struggled to say no I said sure I can do that so Anyway, it was just sort of torture preparing and preparing and preparing. And I ended up having sort of a list of notes in front of me just to remind me of the next shtick that I was going to go through. So anyway, fish are weird. Salmon. <laughs> Have you not <laughs> yeah. seen the episode in the uh, of uh, How I Met Your Mother? Where no, I've never was, seen that show. <laughs> Marshall was trying to do stand-up comedy and all his, and his shtick was just listing funny names of fish. Bass. I'm going to say it again. Bass. Sturgeon. <laughs> if you connect anyway. with the audience, you can you can sell anything. Um, and that's sort of what I focused on. But because I knew that I wouldn't memorize the the last half of my my order of my the stories that I wanted to tell, like I, I had some notes up there with me. So like I appreciate that if that's where he's coming from. But anyway, Spalding Gray, he's, he's fine. And I know that there are different on where I am in PEI like there are a lot of there's a lot of local talent and there are people who in the summer they do these shows and they have these runs of of uh storytelling shows usually there's someone playing music along with it but but you know these like Joey Wheel who's been on the show his dad is a fairly well-known uh historian and island storyteller and he does a show I think oftentimes in the summer and just people flock to it and I haven't seen it but but it (laughs) didn't How dare you? <laughs> but but at any rate, uh, it's it's a skill I admire. And uh, anyway, this is fine. This works for me. But then we've we've gone through it, and now it's over, and I'm ready for the next thing. And I don't feel the need necessarily to revisit it anytime soon. I'm happy it's on YouTube, so that mm-hmm. I can if I want to. Not like that poor gentleman that waited 20 years for it to be released on YouTube, having lost I mean, two of his. Mm-hmm physical media is probably two also, of the only in existence also like the 17 years ago this was released in six years it took him to find it on youtube yeah but anyway anyway a <sighs> lot of rambling there so i do have a couple questions maybe just to spark some some conversation uh just to see where where it goes um what do you think it is about Spalding Gray that appealed to Soderbergh? What's the Soderbergh connection here? I know he's sort of a younger dude when he does Gray's Anatomy, but what pulls him into the mix, do you think? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he says this in Everything Goes... Uh, and Everything is Going Fine. Mm-hmm. He says it. Uh, he talks about how Soderbergh approached him. It, it looks like he generally appears to filmmakers because he also... Did he write, like, The Killing Fields? No, he was a film. No, I think he was. He had a small role in it, isn't that? Maybe a small role in it. I don't know. Maybe that's that. Yeah, and then, then, and and he. So he he traveled with the production, and when he came back, 
one of his first one man shows uh, swimming to Cambodia was largely built around the experience of working mm-hmm. on that film. I think that's how it goes. It's like, I don't know what it is. Like, is this is like this weird charisma or is this just like he appeals to Soderbergh because of his, I don't know. Is this, is this like a jealousy complex or is just like, look, he's, he can just tell stories out of nowhere. And meanwhile, here I am just like slaving away at a script. And all I care about is just whether my, my camera is going to have bells and whistles because I can't write a script or something or, or just, it looks like it's so, so natural to him. But, I, but at the same time, maybe, but it doesn't work for me. So I don't quite know hmm. what works because like you say, you said it really well in that you can listen to him. And not pay attention to any of it. Mm-hmm. And he just talks about his like doctor and not. And it's like, are you seeing any other doctors? And like the the audience in the in the room just laughs laughs their asses off. I'm just like, why? Because again, for a stand up comedian, he's sitting down. He doesn't he doesn't read. Really, um, like all he do is all, all he does is, he, is is that he talks and he does and he doesn't talk about anything. So it's just the world's weirdest podcast. Because when people on the on podcast are talking about about nothing, there's always going to be like a crowd of people. So you're there for the rapport, for the banter, and there's going to be jokes, and they'll actually make attempts at making each other laugh or making you laugh. So like the sort of the nothing shows with comedians, whatever, right? But if you want to do a show yourself, tell me something, <laughs> tell me a story, <laughs> teach me something. I don't know, do something, right? Meanwhile, he just talks about his life, and his life is not necessarily that eventful either. He talks about his like eye surgery, so in a way, it's kind of like listening to the um, what's the guy's name? Jesus, Alzheimer, ah, <gasps> Mark Marin. I don't know if you've ever listened to his podcast. He always gives okay. give does like the, the twenty minute sort of uh, preamble to before he has a guest on. Mm-hmm. And the twenty minute will be kind of like a Spalding Gray monologue almost, where he's just like he's not necessarily being funny, so he's just talking about his life. And I'm just saying yeah. to myself, twenty minutes of this is probably like the most I can stand. But here we are, eighty minutes in, twice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a guy in Canada, Stuart McLean, who for CBC he did a like he did a lot of these one man shows and he would tell stories around a couple of characters. And I think he was very similar to this. They, and, and the characters that he was telling stories about Dave and Morley, I think they're sort of based on maybe his parents or people in his life. It, it feels like that. Like, um, but at the same time, it's, I can get into it, but yes, I can, I can, I can tune out as well. Um, and this is, this is something that uh, I've, I find that as, as he, goes on he's doesn't seem to be interacting with the audience and maybe that's why i can sort of tune out for for periods of time he that what he writes and what he delivers what i like about it is his material is how i like to write he's articulate Mm -hmm. and there's humor in it but it's not necessarily built to interacting or making eye contact with the audience in any in, in, in any type of way he just keeps moving on and he's got a nice articulate way uh to go through it i uh, i sort of wonder myself if soderbergh likes the dry wit and if he's attracted mm-hmm. to his work in the same way that he'd be re, uh, attracted to uh, woody allen's work and richard lester's work I, I wonder if he's just that type of a humorist 
um, thinking to Schizopolis, which was making the festival rounds at the same time as, as uh, Grey's Anatomy. Uh, when I think of Schizopolis, it's sort of, now it's very much more in your face, but it does have that sort of dry wit at times mm-hmm. ar- around the language. So I wonder if that's the appeal, uh, to be honest. And then as a young man, and just maybe if he's attracted to these shows, maybe he sees an opportunity in here to play with compositions. How can I take what is a very flat, like the flattest of flat stage productions, man mm-hmm. at a desk, who stands up once or twice during 80 minutes and then sits back down. You, like, you can't get more basic than that. And Soderbergh, maybe he, A, is attracted to Spalding Gray's, you know, wit and, and style of humor, but then maybe he can play with that. How can I amp that up in terms of compositions and um, make make this special? I, I wonder if there's an hmm. appeal in there as well. Just how can he bring his craft that he's learning? And he's a little bit of an indie hotshot at this point. How can he bring that to, you know, Spalding Gray's shtick? Like, I don't know what he's bringing to the, to the shtick. I think he's more, more like taking something from his shtick. Because I think if there's something that he's taking from him, as in like Soderbergh's taking it from Gray, would be that... Um, the sort of the casual humor, as in like not drawing attention to jokes, but he still, but he makes them work a little bit better because he he operates in a different spade space. <laughs> it's late, <laughs> but you know, no, he operates in on kind of like a different plane almost because he still operates with the visual or with the denial of visual or with knowingly. Um, wanting you to disregard or, or not pay attention to certain things that he that he thinks are funny. Um, meanwhile, I just think Gray just talks, and I'm not sure how written this is. I think he he almost like works it out in pro in in progress. Which I you know on on some level I I was just say I appreciate that because hmm, I've been thinking about this and maybe maybe this is something I I don't know. I've been thinking about this a, a little bit. Uh, and the more I think about it, the more convinced I am that, say, like podcasting, for instance, helps me get better at writing. Because by and large, I write as I speak. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like, I, I don't like, I, I don't, you know, people will just work on their articles and they'll just reread and rewrite passages or they'll just like take out entire paragraphs and re-engineer I just sit down and I vomit everything on the page and I'll write it and I'll read it. And it's, it's going to be like, I think I mostly like what I, what I, I'll just look for stuff that doesn't make sense and correct it. And maybe just add a thing or two, maybe ex, like exclude a few words, but overall, overall, everything that you'll ever read from me is more, mostly the first draft. Mm-hmm. Mostly <laughs> it's the first, it's like, I live in the world of first drafts. It's like, I think I'm happy with this. Like my, let's make some, some corrections. Uh, and so it looks like it's, you know, like it's not been written on 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 the lap, but you know. And then the more I talk, the more confident I get at talking, especially that English is not my first language. So there's always this. The 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 better I feel, the more confident I feel about writing. So and he, and then in a way, it looks like Spalding Gray speaks as he writes. As well, 
So he mm-hmm. kind of goes like yeah. the opposite, as in like he, like he, when he when he talks, it almost like someone reads your book. Mm-hmm. And if it if he just makes it happen, then this is a little bit magical, I suppose, for people. Just look look at him; he he can just tell these witty things that have jokes just written in and hidden so here and there, and then you just can totally disregard it or totally notice them and laugh and laugh and laugh, but maybe that maybe that's it he i don't know if this is the lester-esque thing but maybe that's kind of part of it that he's he's very unassuming when it comes to his comedy yes yeah very much so like for the soderbergh piece do you not see in gray's anatomy because because this is where i feel i feel that soderbergh is is really wants to make a stage come to life like a stage that really just has a, a table and a chair and a guy just sort of talking conversationally. Well, and well, I see he, he wants to do that. It's just like whether it's working is a separate question. Well, I think Soderbergh is, like for me, I think Soderbergh is quite successful in um, making what could be a very, very boring looking uh, stage production into something relatively dynamic. You know, so things that I notice that he's doing is he's working on compositions. So maybe here is maybe some of the beginnings of I want to do non-traditional compositions, especially when people are talking. So, and that's something that we've seen with Soderbergh throughout, like just mm-hmm. the talking scene, the dialogue scene. How can I cover that in a way that doesn't look flat and boring and just, oh, you know, two shot over the over the shoulders of the of the actors? So he's got a, a roaming camera. Each each scene starts in a different place. So sometimes he's be, he he puts things in front of the uh, in the camera to make the shot a little bit more dynamic. So he's playing with sort of the opening and closing of every scene because he's also editing out to the next section of uh, Gray's uh, monologue. He's cutting to the next section at a certain beat. And then that cut is to, you know, the next line of dialogue, but but he's in a totally different set. So it, it seems like it's fairly planned out the... Uh, the the stage design and the edit and the the moving camera just to capture this dynamically and yet it's still it's not so obvious that it's n- drawing attention away from Spalding Gray's monologue so he's still respecting the material and it, he's still putting Spalding Gray's you know words and performance in the forefront but it is not flat looking at all so I, I sort of admire that too because he's if I were to do that I, I would be moving the camera and how can I make this sort of more fancy? And I'd be trying all these things and I'm sure it would just be obvious that I'm just farting around with the camera. It's like, keep the camera still, man. But, but Soderbergh's, hmm. he's not like he, he's coming up with good compositions and he's, he's planning these exit points to where this part of the dialogue is. And then he's cutting to another spot. So I, I appreciate Grey's Anatomy for that too. That this is surprisingly dynamic looking. It's way more dynamic looking than I was expecting. Oh, it's way more dynamic than the other film because the other film is kind of just like, well, okay. I sort it's of wonder the other film, the 2010 film, and everything is going fine. I honestly wonder if that's a eulogy of sorts. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, because there's no new footage. It, it's it's a compilation exercise, yeah. and it's it's edited that way i'd say it's mostly linear though you know he grabs footage from different places and he's trying to find maybe a story in there like i i see maybe 
and and everything is going fine. I, I see how maybe he's in his work. He's always sort of contemplating death and talking about morbidity and mortality and mm-hmm. his mom. And, you know, it just, it, it just feels a little bit more ominous in uh, and everything is going fine because everything mm-hmm. wasn't going fine because Spalding Gray suffered from depression and took his own life in 2004. Uh, so I think that it's just, that film is a very kind, generous eulogy of sorts of, of who Spalding Gray was. You get his talents covered and you sort of cover cover his life in a respectful manner. I think that's all that is. That one holds less interest to me mm-hmm. um, creatively because I, I that's how I see it. And I, I'm totally fine with that. But mm-hmm. I, I don't know if there's more intention in there as just sort of a well-meaning project in, in memory of someone he looked up to. It's another clue for me or a reason maybe why... I feel Soderbergh maybe looked up to Spalding Gray for his, for his, either his talents or his friendship or both, one or, one or the other. Mm-hmm. It makes you wonder whether this is one of those as well, where the filmmaker is like everyone's kind of a little bit taken aback by like what he killed himself, um, because only after the guy's gone and people start looking in for signs of things to come and they, because they realized like this guy was severely depressed and he didn't think he, he may, may may have not thought he was mm. kind of like a robin williams scenario where it's just like oh what what happened and i was like and now like when you put it in this context it makes sense because you know like this guy is entertaining and he's talking about these things in, in between the lines mm-hmm. and i suppose like so- soderbergh's actually crafting this narrative to actually underscore that all throughout his life, maybe he has been suffering from from something. And just to kind of reel it back to the previous film and to previous question, I'll maybe say, like, you're probably correct as well, that he's, in at least in this case, like, yeah, and everything is going fine. I think you're right that he's crafting a eulogy. It's an epitaph for this guy. And, um, and he's trying to tell a story, as in draw attention to his mental health problems. Mm-hmm that they've been there all along and we just like people people just chose not to see this or they they were overwhelmed by other things i don't know. they were looking for other things and they didn't they didn't even think to notice right the first film i think it's it kind of plays into our sort of our own shtick of understanding soderbergh is that he's he's seeing this as a challenge as in like how can i as you say like how can i turn this sort of stage with just a table a guy and a microphone a piece of paper and a glass of water um, into something cinematic, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then he turns it into, you know, essentially a, a video essay with, I, I don't know. I don't know if he's successful in this. I think the answer is, I'm not sure if you can make it cinematic because it has to work on the back of the of, of the guy's storytelling anyway. So in a way, Soderbergh's sort of, additions to it say like the camera moves when he goes off the chain and he starts shouting about the uh, surgery and whatever and then this is gonna go blind and whatever and and he's spinning and there's colors in the background and you think to yourself this is such a student move Mm, i suppose Uh, so yeah for, for me is i think yes he is trying to make it cinematic and and also point number two is i'm not sure it can be rendered cinematic and interesting at the same time i think it has to work on the back of the story and the story is that the guy's just talking so there's very little to kind of draw attention to so 
I'm out of things to say. Jesus, yeah. this is not happening to you. <laughs> I, know. I know. It's just, it's such a bizarre little entry to our Soderbergh journey, but you know, it is what it is. Like these here are two little films that we've put an asterisk beside the whole year. Well, we'll get to them. We'll get to them. Uh, and we're getting to them. Uh, but I think they can only go hand in hand. They don't really fit, you know, the discussion in our normal format. So I think we're sort of doing right. I'm also running out of uh, things on this, but I will ask. And as opposed to asking for, you know, top threes and bottom threes, uh, I'll just say like, if we'll just, what what were highlights or, or lowlights from, from this that are worth mentioning? Oh, the highlight from this for me is you don't make make this film cinematic by doing stuff to the form it's 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 just you wait for spalding great to bring a a tape like a boombox on stage and just play chumba wamba (laughs) (laughs) i was like now we're cooking (laughs) but yeah i I don't know just like that's that's kind of the highlight because like all these sort of nuggets and stories they kind of come and go they're very fleeting and i I suppose uh, applause is kind of due on the back of the fact that the guy speaks very casually in a very literary way. So I don't know how much in terms of rehearsal and prep there there is behind his work. But it's it comes across very natural and at the same time very engineered. Like if you transcribed it and put it in, into writing, it would just look indistinguishable from a memoir. Mm. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, world's we- biggest podcast, weirdest podcast, sorry, where it's just like, there's there's this guy doing some kind, like, engaging in some kind of a banter with, about nothing, with without anyone to bounce this off of. So this is a podcast about nothing, with where I'm supposed to enjoy the chemistry with a guy with himself. It's a bit weird. But yeah, I don't even know if, if there are any like low sort of moments where you can just draw attention and say, ah, this, I didn't like this because I didn't just vibe with any of this. I mm-hmm. think it's just not for me. And I think this is one of those, I have to just be honest and say like, this is just not for me. I fully appreciate that there are people who just love, love, love and laugh, laugh, laugh about um, at, at all of this. But it's not for me, have I? So I can't even bring myself to kind of bring you just like, oh, this is just a bottom moment for me. That I really kind of perked up when he started playing Chumbawamba in one of those films. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. What I would add to the conversation, and I don't really have anything that I would like to list as a low point either. I think this is just sort of a style and I can appreciate if you don't groove with it, then, you know, maybe the whole thing's a low point. Um, I, I was totally fine with it. But um, a couple of things. I love the brevity of it. I love that it's less than 80 minutes. Um, but something that I would say that I also like, and it's from uh, Grey's Anatomy, and the film starts this way. You've got these, and I'll call them Errol Morris type of moments, where you've got these uh, documentary interviews with random people who, see, Errol Morris would take random people and find something really interesting about them and then sort of delve into that. And I find these little segments do that because Soderbergh finds these people who had like maladies I, I, and injuries to their eye. <laughs> so like one guy got like Some a hot shard of metal. There's another lady ocular that's... Go- body horror, yes. Yeah, super glued her eye. She didn't it's say how. Like, I put super glue in my eyes because I thought they were eye drops. Uh, so anyway, and then... 
and someone else got wire in their eye and there was an aneurysm and a fish hook. <laughs> so these folks were interesting to me. And every so often, whenever uh, the, the film and the monologue from Spalding Gray would talk about a treatment to his macular pucker, I think it was called, his diagnosis, and he would try these bizarre treatments, uh, the film would jump back to these what I'll call Errol Morris type of moments where uh, presumably Soderbergh is interviewing these people on the street. Well, would you try going to a First Nations hot tent ceremony (laughs) and treatment? Uh, yeah, I think I would. Or no, I think that's crazy. Would you go to a was it psychological surgeon? Because these are the things that uh, we get into with uh, Gray's monologue. So I liked sort of going back to these guys. It was a little bit of a, a narrative uh, flair that I liked. So that's something that I would I would throw in certainly as a, a highlight. And I mean, okay, maybe as a low light. Uh, this is hasn't anything to do with the film, but more or less with like Spalding Gray because he's such a trained. Um, raconteur and whenever in everything is going fine when when you see snippets of interviews with him when someone asks him a question he doesn't really give you straight answers he tells you stories and at some point you're just like can you just relax and tell me just yes or no is enough because he goes into these sort of almost like researched rants in Mm -hmm. in 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 response to what could have been a casual question and he never and at this point, and he just realized you just realized he he can't turn it off. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose the only exception to that is when he's trying to drill down with his dad and asking his dad for a couple questions to to corroborate elements of his own story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but but yeah, no, that's that's fair. That's fair. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, I've got nothing else to say. Like, I like watching these, certainly for what we were doing this year. I really value seeing these just from the Soderbergh completionism angle. So I'm glad I've, I've checked these off. You know, I enjoy them, but yeah, I sort of tune in and tune out. So, and I do admire the the skill that's on display just in his writing and just that type of writing and art, articulate, uh, you know, communication. I, I like it. And then like some of the wit comes out of word choice and mm-hmm. uh, description and it, like uh, the humor will hit you when you don't really expect it because he's not constructing things with the rhythm that a comedian would like, he's not connecting with an audience. Like he, the, the humor is almost coming out of his prose as if it were just reading it out of a book as opposed mm-hmm. to it being a staged piece. That, that's about all I have to say about uh, Mr. Gray. So I'm content, if it works for you, mm-hmm. to move on to uh, maybe just talking a little bit about our Soderbergh journey altogether. Yes, please. Uh, so <laughs> let's do that. <laughs> and uh, I'll just sort of briefly go through sort of, sort of what, His we, entire what biography. we did. He was born. Now, now, I'll more so go through our journey. So in, with Out of Sight, which was episode 89, that was our first uh, Soderbergh film. And then last, I guess it was the last, it was around September of 2022 that we came up with this, right? I think so. Because that was, um, what did we do? Because like, Out of Sight was part of like a double bill for Elmore Leonard adaptations, right? And we were just like, oh, you know. Which we no, were we doing were talk- around September. I kind of remember, we, we, yeah, because we were going to meet up with uh, Kevin and Aaron, and you know, being the losers that we are, we misplanned our evening, and then we just 
didn't have Kevin and Aaron and we just planned out our year and mm-hmm. didn't we come up with the idea? Let's, let's do all the Soderbergs that night. I think that's how it came. I think that's kind of how it went. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how it went. Cause you were, you were saying this, like you, you kind of brought the Soderbergh to the, to the table and I said like, I had this off idea about just, Oh, like splitting, like finding a filmography where you, where you can do big films in, in, on the Patreon yeah, uh, and small films on the main show. So finding a filmmaker that's kind of like, a, um, like has like a almost like a bi- bipolar career. Yeah, and then we did talk about like Soderbergh doing one for him, one for the studio, and it was just like, oh, you know, like when you brought this to the table, it just made perfect sense. Yeah, so that's how it all came to be. And just to fill in a couple blanks, because we've talked about some. 68 hours worth of Soderbergh's filmmaking, but that's... Did you do the maths on this? What's yeah, that? Did, did you What's do that? the maths on this? Yes, yeah, you did. You, you calculated the amount well, I just of hours. Did, I just did 34 times 2, and I figured it must be no. close. You know, Probably more than that. Could be, because some of them are more, yeah. and, you, and you've got four hours of Che. So anyway, yeah. it's probably about 68 hours of filmmaking just in his feature film, but just to fill in a few blanks on, on Soderbergh, he is also, uh, done a lot of television. We talked, you know, just in passing about the Nick, um, K street was a series he did back in his early section eight days. He, he, uh, co-produced that with Clooney. He did two episodes of fallen angels. Do you know anything about that show? Nope. Not fallen- even a little bit. I don't know too much about it, but it was uh, a launch pad for young filmmakers in the 90s. Soderbergh did two episodes. I think there's only 13, um, but it's also a spot where some young professional actors tried their hand at directing just to sort of get their feet wet in that other, on the other side of the camera. Tom Cruise directed an episode. Tom Hanks directed an episode. Kiefer Sutherland directed an episode. Alfonso Cuaron directed an episode. Our good friend Michael Lehman directed an episode, John Dahl. So anyway, it's, it, I'd love to check it out. It's sort of like uh, Tales from the Crypt, I think, where they're all freestanding episodes. That would be sort of a fun one to look at. But Soderbergh is the only director to do two of those. And then, of course, we've we've mentioned that he he now is seems to be drawn to these alternative types of storytelling, like Mosaic being a six-episode um, app, really. Um, and also, I believe it's Command Z, which is out now, but it's a web series, and and that's sort of another odd piece. So anyway, like the guy's busy. So anyway, that I think fills in most of the blanks. Oh, the only the other project I just wanted to mention, just in passing, in 2021, he produced the Oscars episode, the the COVID Oscars episode. He was the man behind all the mm-hmm. all the choices he was the man behind the best actor award being the last award of the evening and anthony that was the best moment <laughs> no so just wanted to throw that in there that that was there as well um, especially when it was like people were just saying that chadwick boseman's gonna get it posthumously and it's like no he yeah he may not the momentum <laughs> shifted but and soderbergh admitted that he was it was sort of built around the the Bozeman idea because it would be a nice moment, but it didn't transpire. Anyway, from this project, what have your bit what have been your big takeaways? Oh, big takeaways is one big takeaway because before we sat down to do this, my sort of understanding of Soderbergh, and I had seen a bunch of his films and I filled in all the blanks, right? 
but that he was kind of like the one for him, one for one for me, uh, mm-hmm. one one well, one for him, one for the studio sort of filmmaking, right? Um, and then actually digging into the filmography in detail kind of allowed allow me allowed me first and foremost to just imagine that he's kind of like an Orson Welles, as in like he's the he's the sort of unfound terrible. He's a guy who's gonna be upsetting mm-hmm. the status quo. And then as I went along into this film filmography i realized that more often than not specifically when he's not doing oceans films or anything big budget in hollywood related he's like a jean-luc godard type new wave filmmaker who continues to um push the boundaries whenever he found finds one so he's excited about this tech he's excited about doing things in cool ways and Actually, the biggest realization I had was that he's not necessarily too keen on telling stories. He's fine appropriating a story and and, and doing something in a style, doing my own version of a story, doing mm-hmm. my Casablanca, my The Underneath, my, you know, Mike Nichols film, what's his face? Um, Carnal Knowledge. Carnal Knowledge, yes, yeah. that's the one. <laughs> like that... Or, you know, my the trial, my this, my that. Rocky. <laughs> That's, <laughs> you know, I, I that that was kind of something that I really um, clued into and it allowed me to, let's just say, I want to say appreciate the guy a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I still, I, I hold him in high regard anyway, but just you, you can, you can clue into the, uh, quite a bit more when you, when you look into, not necessarily the, the storytelling, but the craft and the dis- directorial decisions. He's a, he's a, f- yeah. I don't want to say he's a film critics filmmaker, but he's a, because film critics for the most part are, are just useless. Because they were just like, ah, acting's amazing. Channing Tatum's sweet. Uh, just, and people really don't look at what, what these films could potentially do or what they mm-hmm. how he allows these movies to be read into i think uh without necessarily caring too much about them so he's yeah in in a way he's he's an essayist filmmaker that's what i that's like you can you can, you can write about this stuff and none of it will probably be in the text but it's going to be fun yeah so that's kind of how i yeah for yeah. for myself similar i i'd seen I'll even say I'd seen most of Soderbergh's films. I've probably seen 20 of them and I've filled in the other uh, 14 over the course of the year. I'm just making those numbers up, but I'm certainly really acquainted with them. But I think there's something special about what we did in terms of going through the man's career, basically a a film at a time, more or less in sequence. So if there are takeaways for me, I guess they revolve around seeing Soderbergh in the 1990s because that's a different Soderbergh, I think, than we see in the 2000s. So I I see him in in these different eras. I see Mm -hmm. him as a high IQ, a high film IQ filmmaker, which I guess I always sort of felt. But I I really see in the the early 2000s, he had a bit of a mission. And maybe this is what this was his I'm king of the world type of feeling that, you know, okay, people really appreciated traffic and I'm taking a film like Traffic and Aaron Brockovich, these films that are experimental or they're, you know, it's it's my my 70s film or it's my my Altman multi-narrative film or whatever. 
and he's finding a huge audience for them. And then with, oh, it's my Rat Pack film or my heist film and Ocean's Eleven takes off, like he really is the bell of the ball. It's mm-hmm. it's as if the studios found what they were looking for in the 1990s. It's like, oh, there's something to this this independent move movement. This indie wood is sort of a thing. How can we capitalize on that? Oh, I know. It's through Tarantino and Soderbergh because these mm-hmm. are the guys that can you know, really take a studio and a big budget film and, and turn it into magic. So, but when, with, when Soderbergh's doing it, he's, he has another mission. It's like, I want to bring, uh, an unappreciated, uh, film or film style or a filmmaker from the past. And I I want to pay homage to him and and bring that work into the fore, like Solaris. And I want to make that compatible for mainstream audiences Mm -hmm. and something too that i didn't really think about or appreciate too much i I think that he really especially when he was king of the world he i think he really felt that he he wanted to sort of give back and help other people's careers like he i think he did it with Clooney. he he did it with uh damon and he's he did it with uh nolan and the russos and so many other todd haynes like uh if, if you look at the films that Soderbergh produced, and we didn't really look at many of those, you can see the filmmakers that uh, Soderbergh has been trying to prop up over the years. Like, so I really think him as think of him as, as a collaborator and someone who's really supportive of other people. I think that he's all about filmmaking, you know, just the, 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 the filmmaker that made Sex, Lies, and Videotape n- never left him. But as he had more opportunities, I think he really wanted to um, help bring other types of cinema to the masses. And I think he wanted to uh, help help bring bigger audiences to interesting filmmakers. So I, I think that he really took on a lot in the 2000s. And I, I never really thought of his career that way. I just thought of him as, oh, he's sort of a cool director. And, you know, sometimes he'll do a big one and then he'll try to do a small one. Uh, but there was a purpose for all of that. So it was really interesting looking at at the different eras, like the Section 8 era, that very interesting, right up basically till his retirement. Um, so that was that was something that was very interesting to see his career line up with the backdrop of Hollywood history through mm-hmm. late 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s. Mm-hmm. I suppose, yeah, there's a... Um, I kind of also appreciate that how, how busy this, this guy is. Like, he doesn't really want to sit down. And I kind of, you know, I appreciate people who really want to stay active. Mm-hmm. So as a result, you kind of get a very prolific filmmaker who, unlike other prolific filmmakers, like, again, Woody Allen, we keep talk, coming back to him, especially recently, right? Mm-hmm. Who churns out one and a half film a year without fail on average. Mm-hmm. And they're all kind of mostly the same. As in, like, he's he's kind of like, well, I mean, they're not the same because some of them are better than others and whatever, but they're, they're kind of of the same ilk. It's a Woody Allen film. Yeah. Undeniably. Yeah. Yeah. Six characters, all intellectuals talking about sex and whatever. Or relationships or I don't know. Death. More ta- I don't know. Things like that, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, this guy stays active and he stays eclectic. He's probably mm-hmm. one of the most eclectic American filmmakers alive. 
I want to say. And as prolific as as he is as well. Like he has such a body of 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 um of work under his belt. Yeah. All from different corners of the yeah. of the medium. So uh, yeah, that's kind of how I, I I think I appreciate it more on the back of this sort of this experiment when we went one by one actually just traced his development as well. That kind of helped to yeah. kind of just see one by one, piece by piece, how he changes over time, and he changes a lot. Yeah. At the so, same time, also remaining, let's just say, married to the constant philosophy of challenging himself and loving film and be and willingness to collaborate I, i'd say there there are mm-hmm. certain things you can see there that are throughout um in terms of like what if we just uh just quickly go through the chronology just to see if there's anything that comes out of it so he launches his career with uh sex lies and videotape and this is sort of there's a lot of indie excitement around that and then in the 1990s we talked quite a bit about the guy couldn't Catch a, break. catch a break yeah <laughs> and i have a a bit here from the book i read getting away with it or further adventures of the luckiest bastard you ever saw starring steven soderbergh and so this is in part his journal entries from 1996 to 97 and in part his interview with richard richard lester a series of interviews he had with richard lester at the time <laughs> and just on the business of not catching a break just in skimming through earlier i found <laughs> So this is in the era, and it's also fitting too, because we were talking about Grey's Anatomy. This is like um, the underneath era. Yep. Yep. Look, okay. here we go. So this is Steven Soderbergh, uh, I want to say in 1997. Mm-hmm. The London Festival passed on both of Schizopolis and Grey's Anatomy. Thanks a fucking lot. Last year, I stood on the stage and introduced the underneath and said I wanted to make a new kind of film. And Sheila Whitaker, in front of the entire audience, said, well, I hope you bring it to the festival here in London. What's up with that? <laughs> so, Assholes. like, yeah, so I think that he was Gosh. always sort of at, at odds with the business side of making movies. Um, and then, ironically, I find that he... He ended up sort of being fascinated that at the same time. So maybe it's the idea that, well, if I can break through and bring films to a certain audience, then that would be meaningful to him. Uh, so yeah, like the 1990s, he had a lot of uh, sort of tough luck, and he and he was writing scripts for Henry Selleck, and he was taking you know gig work and and this type of thing as well because you know his indies weren't necessarily working out or easy to sell uh, until Out of Sight comes along, and that I think is sort of the game changer I think for mm-hmm. his career. I would have to say, and then because then after that you get a series of uh, critically beloved and successful films. So out of sight, the Limey was sort of an indie darling, um, but Aaron Brockovich, Traffic, and then into the Section Eight era, and which opens. ends with his retirement. <laughs> and then yep. we've talked the last you know couple months about uh, his retirement, um, and I, I think. Still, like I, st- we, I talked about this on the Magic Mike's last dance episode. Uh, that I <laughs> feel almost said uh, Magic Mike's last last dance. Boy Scout. <laughs> uh, I should have had one ready to go. I should have had a spare last movie. But um, at any rate, I, I think that the guy did retire. He said he was retiring, and I feel now, as I said in that episode on on Patreon, I I feel he has retired because he's. He's 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 not going back to the office. He's not going back to the studios. He's doing his own thing. He's helping out friends and he's working on projects in the way that 
Should I ever retire? I'll help my kids with their projects. Oh, mm-hmm. you want to paint the house? I'll help you paint the house. You know, you want to do a project? Dad will come and help out because I'm retired and I got mm-hmm. some free time. Yeah. I, I feel that's sort of the mode he is. So I feel he really did sort of retire. Um, so that's my takeaway from the last month of Soderbergh watching. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I think this is a good take. In just in addition to his early days, I think there's also something that the critics of the time weren't exactly ready for this. Because having seen Sex Lies and Videotape and lauded it and saying like, look, this is amazing, refreshing, oh my god, scintillating. Pick an adjective, Mr. Critic. They expected more of the same. I don't think people were, even Tarantino, for instance, like he comes on the on the stage, like he just takes the world by storm in Reservoir Dogs and he comes back with Pulp Fiction. And and, but he kind of stays close to what he likes. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, this guy comes goes from sex lies and videotape to a to very a Orson Welles like Brazil Kafka. remake. Brazil remake, exactly. <laughs> yeah, makes yeah he, in he black makes and Orson, white. Uh, yeah, he makes Orson Welles meets Terry Gilliam with 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 some other bits as well. Very stylized, very very odd. And mm-hmm. then from there, he does a Spielberg film. And then he does a Lester film. And then he and all of a sudden, like, what are you on, guy? And I think people were just weren't really. Like, it turns out just that critics don't like change because critics like simple narratives, as well. It's difficult yeah. to go and say like, "Oh, this is." You know, they they like to peg people in in that way and say like, "This is what Soderbergh yeah. is like. This is what you should expect if you like that kind of film. Go and watch this." Meanwhile, there, you can't recommend a new Soderbergh to anyone. Who may like a Soderbergh because you don't know what a Soderbergh is because every time you see one, it's different. <laughs> so, and I, I think know. that way yeah. too. I think of like, well, is it early Soderbergh? Is it awards, awards and is it uh, critical Soderberg? praise? Is it the uh, is it the uh, stripper <laughs> big, Soderbergh, the blockbuster big budget Soderberg? Soderbergh? Yeah. yeah, is it retirement Soderbergh? Yeah, I totally is it agree. The uh, bells and whistles iPhone Soderbergh? You don't know. <laughs> Um, did you have any surprises over the course of the year going through his films? Anything really say, geez, I didn't see that coming. Oh yeah, quite a few. But then again, I should probably just keep them close to my chest as we will be revealing our tops, right? Fair enough. Uh, but some, let's just say I had a few negative surprises as in, um, like looking at the list of the films, I might as well just reveal that, that aspect, looking at the list of films that he's done. Some of his most beloved films, the Oceans trilogy, are like right at the bottom of my, of my, of my ranking, but close to the bottom. I think Eros is just there. But yeah, I was surprised, very positively surprised at how well I received some of the films that A, are not necessarily that well known and were critically derided, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think I had... Yeah, maybe this isn't just my own. Like, am I spinning a narrative? I don't know. I don't think I am doing this consciously, but like, I sometimes feel like I disagree with the critical consensus a lot. Mm-hmm. And the more I think about it, the more I realize that maybe I maybe there's a problem with me. Maybe I should just hold the line and shut up. But at the same time, I just I just think like the. The, the position of the cultural position of a film critic is the position of a fraud 
Like people who don't know what they're talking about, they just make shit up as they go along. I make shit up as I go along, but I don't call myself a critic, okay? And these people are just like, oh, you should listen to me because I work for the Guardian newspaper. Fuck you. <sighs> One thing that I'll throw into that conversation that I like—I think we do a pretty good job on this podcast, just in our discussions, is that we, I think we earnestly try to get to the film story, like, not the story of the the film, the narrative within. I mean, like, where does that's this? Yeah. yeah, we try to hit on that too. But where where does this film fit into the time? Where this where does this film fit into the careers of the people who are involved with it? You know, the the critical reception. Like, we, we really try to delve into the film's story, and I like I find a great value out of that. And you know, I can say to myself, I don't like something, but you know, maybe it's sort of on me because it's just not my thing. Mm -hmm. So I like, since I've entered into these types of conversations, you know, with, with you and Nick and Jack and and all of our guests, um, you know, I, I find that what's important to me to sort of figure out a film or appreciate a film is, well, what wavelength were the, was the director and the producers on? And, you know, a lot comes out of that. And we, we sort of discussed that thoroughly here and I can appreciate something if something's meaning well, but it just sort of it doesn't land or it doesn't work. Um, but often critics will be like, that's stupid. That doesn't work. You know, the, mm -hmm. because I find critics will often go for a, a, a go simple for narrative. Yeah, they'll go for an adjective. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So I, I would echo in terms of surprises. I, I would echo um, what you're saying. There are a few films here in his filmography that I was sort of actively avoiding and yeah, they'll, they'll be on my list, but it's, it's almost as if the marketing campaign around them led me to believe something else. Well, I'll come out and say it. I, the marketing campaign for the informant oh. it re revolves around the quirkiness of Matt Damon's expression. And that to me does not reflect that film at all. So that's a film that, it was always on my to-do list to see, but it was never urgent. And there've been a handful of films in Soderbergh's filmography like that. That is just, for whatever the reason, the appeal wasn't there because the marketing wasn't there. And I, I feel bad that I fell into that uh, because there are a few films, some really, really good films that I think just never really had proper marketing. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of a surprise to me. Um, one film that, yeah, I won't get into the ones that I didn't like that were a surprise, but there wasn't too much of that. There wasn't too much of that. I guess I would also say that I was, um, surprised by the regular simplicity of his retirement films, hmm. like in the regular lack of oomph. But I think maybe we've come across the fact that maybe so... Soderbergh is he's helping his buddies he's doing he, they're not his projects per se and I read a I don't have it but I read a quote somewhere he said well I'm I'm not interested in making uh, I forget the word he used but that film that everyone wants to see like I think it was after Che he's like I'm not putting up with that anymore like I'm not going all out to make the important film that's what he called it I'm not necessarily interested in making the important film that everyone thinks that should be made 
So I, I think in Che, it was right around Che is sort of the, the turning point because Che was a very mm-hmm. challenging production. It was a challenging production to get funding. It was a challenging production physically because they're out in the, the jungles in the Caribbean islands somewhere and Spain. Um, and I said, like, it's not not worth it. No one funded it. No one came to see it in North America. So, it, so that was sort of a bit of a surprise to see that lack of oomph in a good chunk of his latter films. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, any other, Oh, one other comment. We, we talked a little bit um, earlier in the year about Soderbergh as a formalist. Mm-hmm. Do you I still going to touch on this? <laughs> how do you, th- <laughs> how do you see the evolution of Soderbergh's approach um, just through the lens of formalism? I think remember remember that quote that you brought to the table. I was I, I, I want to say right at the time of like a traffic Aaron Brockovich, I think, mm-hmm. sort of era of two thousands when he when he I think actively realized that he was too too formal as a filmmaker and he wanted to to concentrate about telling a good story, as in like concentrate a, a, a on getting a right script together, working with the right people, and getting a good mm-hmm. value out of what he's doing. And I think this idea kind of came and went. I think this is where my sort of like magic mic sort of analogy of <laughs> kind of comes into play where he realizes the idea of he really is a formalist as in like he really gets the kicks out of challenging, challenging the form, playing with the way he makes films, playing with um, the, obtaining the visual mm-hmm. as opposed to telling the story. And then when he says, like, I'd, I'd like to actually tell the story, this is where he does his big films like that, because people, people, masses like to be entertained and not challenged. And then when he wants, what he wants to challenge is the people who want to be challenged, I think. So I think this is kind of like he had this of early career was all about, I'm, I'm, I'm an artist, hear me roar. I'm challenging the form, I'm breaking boundaries, I'm Nouvelle Vache, I'm Jean-Luc Godard, baby, right? And then realizes, no one wants to watch this. And at the same time, I'd like to be validated, I'd like to have a career out of this, and I won't have a career if people don't want to watch my stuff, so no one's going to give me money to do this, so I need to change tack. And he did, and he became the biggest filmmaker in in the world, almost, right? Yeah. Um, but then he comes back and says, like, he realizes probably, like, actually, I... I this is this is easy to me. I I like to challenge myself, and the and the challenge he finds is in the form, not in the content, not in this, not in writing a great script, not in writing something that gets some kind of demons out of him or some kind of voices that need to be expressed. He he gets the kicks out of finding a you know like can I shoot a film on a telephone and make it look like it was done on a camera, you know? Can I? Um, <sighs> Uh, can I do a noir in the in in modern day? I don't know. Can I can I make an yeah? Can I make a noir film out of order? You know. Yeah. That, that, he, yeah. He, this this is how I feel like he he's yeah. all he's then in this regard he's always a, a formalist because just like Magic Mike he's still always dreaming about making furniture out of bottles. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Here's the quote. Um, from Soderbergh in 2008, the reason my career took such a left turn at a certain point 
was because I realized I was in danger of becoming a formalist. But that wasn't the best representation of me, even as a person. It's easy to fit. It's easy to fall into that because it's a very isolated position to occupy, and it's easy to keep other elements, people, mm-hmm. and ideas at a distance. Yeah. Um, and I feel somewhere along the way, like the, the the formalism is always part of his choices, right? Like he chose Kimmy because it's a genre piece. I'm here. <laughs> You, you've been such a rock star. <laughs> took, me, uh, took me a second. I'm sorry. <laughs> wasn't even on my radar. Um, but no sudden move genre. Like so, the form is 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 such a strong part of his work throughout. But there's a certain there's a certain point where I would say that the formalism has not entirely shifted because it's always there, but it's also taken on like this entrepreneurial element. And I want to mm-hmm. say somewhere during the section eight years. So he's He's immersed in the business. He's helping other people get their projects on 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 the go. Um, and then as the industry is changing, he's trying to actively figure out, well, how can I keep doing productions where I have final cut? I suppose I see what they're doing over at Disney and and Warner's. I could go talk to them about, you know, directing the Aquaman movie, I suppose. But he's not interested in that. So he's he's seeing how the market is changing for for cinemas and he's actively interested in well where are those uh where are those middle-aged consumers of film and storytelling where are they watching their stuff they're on streaming or they're on apps or they're wherever so the whole finding his market has becomes an interesting piece i find sort of somewhere through section eight and into the latter part of his career because i I think that's that's a, a guiding force between unsane with unsane and Logan Lucky. The fact that he wants to try to market these films himself, distribute self dis, dis, uh, self distribute these films himself. Fascinating, fascinating choice. So the experimentation and the form are always there, but I think entrepreneurialism is is there front and center in a way too. And that mm-hmm. was interesting to sort of see, which if I had just sort of seen his films piecemeal may not have thought of but in going through the man's whole career uh i think it's unavoidable yeah absolutely yeah oh, what All a right. journey this has been it is and it's and it's been fun i don't think i have any more thoughts or questions unless there's anything else on your radar like in a way i'm kind of it's not necessarily related to Silderberg because like some things i still have to say but i'm going to keep them to my cross my chest but having seen how we've gone methodically through this guy's career and Mm -hmm. into into big sort of project sort of in let's just say in hmm because all the other directors that we did say cassavetes and lynch Mm -hmm. they're let's just say they're more kind of entrenched stylistically and thematically right so it's easier to follow this journey. So mm-hmm. in a way, I'm kind of looking forward to the Spike Lee journey. We're going to go mm, embark on it because I have a feeling it's going to be a bit of a like a bridge between the two. But then again, I, I, I'm looking forward to be proven proven wrong. But just this is from like before we even start, this is how I maybe see this could evolve based on what I know about the guy and what I know about the films that I've seen of his, right? But yeah. Here's another question I just thought of. Um, are there any themes 
that you would say stand out that are common threads that Soderbergh uh, frequently goes back to? <laughs> this is a, this is a hard one because it's sometimes so easy with certain filmmakers. Spielberg, daddy issues. Yep. Cassavetes, ordinary people and their bullshit problems. David Lynch, movies are dreams, you know? <laughs> and and, and Wizard uh, of Oz. 19, 1950s hometown values. That's another yeah. one. Yeah. So you the can Palma just, daddy issues. Exactly. Yeah. Voyeurism, Hitchcock, you know, like you can always, they're, they're almost like a single word mnemonics for these filmmakers. And this guy is kind of like, what am I supposed to pin my hat onto? You know? You know what? I've, I think I've got one that I see an awful lot of in American here. Dream, money, corruption. Uh, yes, I was going to say the 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 Kafka element. Looking at that, the the little man that can't get his slice or is trying to. Mm-hmm. So because you know, the little it's, it's man about the, against the system, it's everywhere. Yeah. Um. Even even in his big films, oh yeah, little man against against the system. So Aaron Brockovich. Aaron Brockovich. Bubble. Traffic. Uh, Ocean's Ocean's films, heist films as well. Like he he kind of has a, a Logan Lucky, another one. <laughs> so yeah. these kind of movies, like if there is a theme, this will be it. This of one guy's or gal gal's journey yeah. to fight against some some kind of a monolith or a set of rules that's kind of geared against, like trying to tilt the table back in their favor and usually yeah. failing, which maybe maybe reflects his own feeling about how he feels he may have entered the, the industry that he always had to fight uphill because he started with a, you know, I think you're exactly right. Being like a darling and all of a sudden just falling from grace almost immediately and having to claw his way back in only to, only to get pissed off and fail again and again. And just, he, he had a real tumultuous career, even yep. though he, even though when you look at it, it's still immensely successful. Sort of yep. career. Yeah. Exactly. And I would throw Magic Mike into there, Girlfriend Experience. Like so many of them are about, you know, the the little guy fighting uphill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. That would be what I would pick out as, as a thematic. I don't know if there's any others. You know, he's done a number of heist movies, but that's maybe well, that's, that's yeah, that's, part that's of just, form. <laughs> that's just easy sort of, yeah, because like he's done heist films, he's done noir films. So you can say like, well, but then again, if you look, even throughout these noir films, most of them you can see like the underneath again, mm-hmm. little guy trying to get ahead. Like all of them have this, the king king of the hill again. All of them have yep. this sort of element that may may not be a central element, but it's non, nonetheless there. And you feel like this may be one of the sort of factors that kind of draw this guy into making a film like this. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Okay, that was sort of the mm-hmm. last thing I can't think of, or at least on the spot, can't think of anything else that I'd like to cover. Uh, talked about his entrepreneurship, his retirement years. Uh, yeah. Surprises. Okay. Yeah. I think I'm good for notes unless there's anything on your mind. No, I so, think I'm good. Do you want to jump into top moments or top films? Let's do top moments first. What do you think of that? Um, top moments from films. Hmm. Yeah. Anything stand out or just doesn't have to be a moment. Just give me a, a top three, two, three, four uh, things that stand out from this year in watching Soderbergh's? Um, I'm going to go off piste with this because I was thinking, mm-hmm. well, should I just pick moments and go like, you know, the 
the generic greeting moment from Schizopolis or something like that. Or, or we're like, can bold men have sex? <laughs> Which just like really made me laugh and laugh, right? Or like I had, like, if I had to pick a moment, do I want to pick the, what's it, like, what is it, the Elliot Gould moment? Is it Elliot Gould? No. Like the blogging is graffiti with punctuation, which yes. really hurt me, you know? <laughs> um, but I'm going to do it, do it differently. I'm going to pick three, th- three moments that made me kind of think about um, maybe even four. Let's just pick four. Moment number one is when I realized um, that Soderbergh made a, made a Tarkovsky film better than Tarkovsky did. Mm-hmm. When I another one when I realized um, that the Girlfriend Experience is a film about cinema. Another one mm-hmm. when I when I realized with with your help mind you as well that Erin Brockovich is Rocky. And when I realized that Magic Mike's trilogy is a Steven Soderbergh's <laughs> life in a pill, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how I'm gonna leave it. These are moments cool. that I, can, I, I think I'll take away from this journey. That just I don't know. I, I'll, I'll just remember for a very long while. Brilliant. How about you? Brilliant. Um, I had sort of a similar approach, as opposed to just sort of standout moments or whatever. And in a way, you know what? Soderbergh was not known for standout moments. That was a comment that came up. He doesn't really do set pieces, does he? His action scenes are sort of awkward, aren't they? Yeah. So doesn't have uh, to do a gunfight. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was left with okay, what do I pick for you know moments? And there were moments that made me pause, <clears throat> see something a different way, or made me reflect. Um, so mine, in no particular order, the man's use of stunt casting which I'd never mm. really considered as a tool in a toolkit. But here's a guy who, you know, he hires the non-professionals in Bubble. He hires uh, Sasha Gray in The Girlfriend Experience, a porn star. Um, and Jack, who was with us for a good chunk of this journey. Hi, Jack. And thank you, Jack. And Nicolo And Ian. And um, who else has been with us? I forget. For the Soderbergh journey? For Soderbergh journey. Ooh. Now that I've created this dead air, I think that's most of them. (laughs) Way to go, Randy. Hillary. Hillary was with us for um, Haywire. So, think that's it anyway thank you everyone for being part of the journey um but yeah jack said at one point when soderbergh does his casting and if he's doing the stunt casting he has a knack and a care for his collaborators that he's not going to put them in a position where they they will fail and and that sort of stood out so the stunt casting as a as a piece that that sort of stood out to me as, as something that Soderbergh was using as a very strategic tool to do his storytelling, like even in the informant where the judges and the lawyers and the agents, they're, they're played by stand-up comedians. Like it is just, and it was just such a, a beautiful touch in, in that. So that is something that stood out to me that I really appreciated. Um, watching again and realizing how much 
love is baked into Logan Lucky mm-hmm. <laughs> and fun. That sort of stuck with me for a long time. I really love Logan Lucky. And I just, just like doing the accent. <laughs> love the accent. <laughs> love the John Denver song. Love the relationship between Channing Tatum and the little girl. Uh, love Daniel Craig. So that's just, yeah, That I thought about that a lot that week. So there was that. Um, as you just mentioned, another thing that stud, stood out for me is the subtle depth of the girlfriend experience. The mm-hmm. how interesting the film is in the context of the 2008 uh, stock market crash and economic crisis to come out of that era. That just adds a whole other layer to that. That's something I thought about quite a bit and I couldn't believe how much I, I adored that movie. Um, and this one is probably my number one. The duality of the messaging in Behind the Candelabra. I watched that once and I thought, okay, great. This is a nice biopic of sorts, relationship drama. But watch it again. And then I spent Matt that. Matt Damon is Soderbergh. <laughs> Matt Damon is Soderbergh. And Liberace is a Universal. sleazeball. <laughs> and he is the industry itself that just takes in these, these young people and just spits them out when they're done of them. Oh, so, God. Oh, my God. Yay, we got, got to use one of my favorite sound bites. <laughs> anyway, that's something I thought about it's like a lot. To this, right? I'm here. <laughs> uh, so... That sort that is something that was sort of an amazing moment for me because it's the more I thought about behind the candelabra, the more I thought that that's a really really special movie, and mm-hmm. you can watch it and enjoy it as just a Liberace film. Isn't that an interesting story about a, you know the poor guy died of AIDS? Isn't that an interesting story? It is because it's like five layers deeper than that. So that was something that stood out. Um. Now, this is probably challenging, but we talked about doing this over the last couple of days. So let's get into our ranking. And we got enough films here to do a top 10. So I proposed a top 10. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's not so, it's, it's something that if we did with Cassavetes, then really we'd just be leaving you a big trouble, <laughs> you know. So we've got lots of films to pick from. Mm-hmm. So, Jakob. Tell me, from 10 to 1, what were your top 10 Soderberghs? All right. So my list is very top-heavy as well. Like, if you look at his entire ranking, it's kind of just like very, very, very good, very, very good for a very long while, and then it drops off the cliff. (laughs) (laughs) So towards the bottom of of my top 10, you could probably interchange some of them. So like films that just about miss my list would be Out of Sight and The Informant. Mm-hmm. Um, so they will be... I could probably swap them over with my number 10 and my number 9 and probably wouldn't feel too different about this. But in that spirit, number 10, that will be Sex, Lies and Videotape. I really enjoy this. Although I, you can... You know, especially when you when you start considering like this, this is Nichols film. like the, Yeah, all that. Behind the Candelabra, number 9. Um, number 8, Traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, at number seven, coming in, uh, <laughs> blogging his graffiti with punctuation, Mr. Forthithia himself. Forthithia. <laughs> uh, Contagion. Oh, cool. It's just, a, it's just a, like probably one of his most watchable films. <laughs> uh, number six, Magic Mike. 
great film, love it. Mm-hmm. And then with that, we enter the realm of top five, which are all five star films. So these were all four and a half out of fives on Letterboxd. Okay. Now we're in the five star region. Number five, Bubble. What a discovery this film was. Mm. Holy Christ. Really loved this. Number four, and this is where I'm going to be controversial because people really... no, I don't think there's anyone in the world, maybe there's probably a handful of us out there who would probably put this movie this high on the list of Soderbergh films. Solaris. Ooh, wow. Really love this film. Holy Christ. It's amazing. And also, half, like you can watch this movie twice. And, and Tarkovsky film still boring. In there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll give you credit for pulling my my uh, star level up on that because I think I went from a three to a four. See, there you go. You need to go again. It's going to be a five. Could be. Number, yeah. Do, do I go again? Hold on. Okay. Number three. The Girlfriend Experience. What a movie. Holy, mm-hmm. holy shamoly. Yeah. And then this is where we get into the big ones. Number two, and this is the biggest surprise of the year for me, Schizopolis. Wow. (laughs) Probably the funniest film I've seen in recent memory. (laughs) And Soderbergh is the star as well. He is. (laughs) And, And it's such a challenging film. Like you could see he put himself out there. Mm-hmm. It's a bizarre movie that also is immensely funny, makes no sense, but also makes a lot of sense. It's 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 the kind of movie that Jean-Luc Godard wishes or <laughs> wished he could make because he didn't have a sense of humor like that. And number one, like you know what it is. I think let's I say it, let's say it all together. On three. Three, two, one. Aaron Brockovich. Aaron Brockovich. The best film this man's ever made. His his Rocky. It's such a film. I could watch it any day. It it just warms my heart. Julia Roberts is just mesmerizing in it. The story is great. And it, again, it's his Rocky. So what can what else do I need to say? That's my top ten. Absolutely amazing. Okay, so I broke down some numbers here. 34 films, not including Eros and counting Che as one film, both parts as one film. Nine five-star films. All right. Eight eight four-and-a-half-star films. So that's half of his filmography. Very five (laughs) And five four-star films. So 21 of his 34 films are, in my books, four stars and above. So my list, and I have a couple fives like Che, which I really love, mm-hmm. but it's not actually on my top 10 because there's a couple other films which I just find are more enjoyable. So, you know, it's it's a heartfelt top 10 list as opposed to a numbers felt top 10 list. So I'll say that um, because Che didn't make my list. I really liked King of the Hill, Ocean's Eleven, Aaron Brockovich, Magic Mike. They're all four and a half star films for me. Not on my list. But, okay. Number 10. For me, and like you, this was a huge surprise because this is another film that I avoided because that poster looks so damn stupid. For oh, so. I know which one. I know. Yeah, Schizopolis. What a joy this was. 
And I'll remind you, if you haven't checked it out yet, I'm pretty sure you can find on YouTube uh, Schizopolis with Soderbergh's commentary, his dual Ooh, commentary. I for- totally forgot about this. <laughs> okay, yeah. this is this is going on my... Uh, Make an asterisk. <laughs> Make, yeah. Holiday the- retreat list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's my number uh, 10. Number nine, The Informant. Okay. Great film. Number eight, Out of Sight. Mm Mm-hmm. Number seven, Logan Lucky. That's a great place for this movie to be. Mm -hmm. Number six, Like You, didn't see this coming at all. Uh, I could have purchased this film on, on DVD for three bucks, you know, previously viewed at the local, uh, the local, uh, no, the local <gasps> bubble. Bubble. It was just on the. It was on the previously viewed rack for years. Always on the the bottom of my to do list somewhere. I am so thankful that I checked that out. What a revelation! Uh, beautiful film. Beautiful film. Number five, Sex Lies and Videotape. Mm-hmm. Number four. Behind the Candelabra. Number three, The Limey. Okay. Love The Limey. Love that choice. Number two, The Girlfriend Experience. <gasps> Another Ooh. film. Never saw it coming. It's just such a straightforward, simple story. It is just beautifully told. It gets you to think. It, it holds up. It's, it's themes hold up. There's con- so many conversations in there. Stunt casting done beautifully. So I think some non-professionals are in there as well. It's just, it's just, it's a revelation and it's just so thought provoking about our times, um, about millennials and their challenges in, you know, becoming professionals. It's just blew my mind, blew my mind. And one of the, one of our big, faults if we had one this year is that we did the informant and uh the girlfriend experience in the same episode they probably eat they probably needed their own episode each mm-hmm. so our that's bad. just us committing to trying to squeeze this into one yeah. year we could have just just if it needs <laughs> to be a year and a half let it be could have a done year 2024 yeah. yeah uh anyway uh but my number one traffic <sighs> Yeah. Oh, I really remember you really love that. Makes I, so much sense. Yeah, I, I, I really do. It holds up. It, it's got pangs of Altman and the color coding. <laughs> you know, it, his form is in there. His story, his stories, they have depth, the interconnectivity of the stories. Uh, it, it's just beautiful. The hopeful baseball ending. I, I just Benicio Del Toro, the performances in that. The performances not annoying (laughs) don cheadle not annoying but benicio del toro so amazing in that film so yeah that's my that's my number one actually that's the first time no what was yeah that's the first time benicio and and don cheadle were together right uh probably yeah that i know of like maybe they have some other you know film from the late 80s or something i don't know but early 90s i'm just wondering what was benicio in out of sight probably wasn't no yeah, okay. No, great list. What a list. Yeah, no, this was a very special project. So, Jakob, thank you very much for being, uh, you know, uh, part of it. And, uh, yeah, I had just an immense 
time, I feel academically and also just in terms of as a cinephile, this was just sort of an amazing uh, project that we embarked upon. So yeah, big thanks to you. And yeah, that's that's our wrap up. Uh, we opened the show with the two Spalding Gray films. Both of those are available on uh, YouTube. They're in physical media too, if you want to track them down. I think Criterion somewhere has a, a release of and everything is going fine. Um, but Jakob, where can our listeners find you? Well, they can find me at Jakob Flash on Letterboxd and flashonthefilm.com. That's F-L-A-S-Z on <laughs> film.com. I just realized recently that my, my surname spelled in a way that people just find discombobulating. But then again, that's just me. Um, not going to advertise Twitter. Sometimes right on medium.com as well. So you can check me out over there. Um, that's me. Yeah. Cool. And you can find me on X at Randy Burroughs. You can find me on Letterboxd at Bratch7. Um, I'm writing again. So I'm working on a project that hopefully I'll have an announcement on sometime soon, but we'll see. But that's fun. I am writing again. I hope to in the next month or so get back into writing some articles and reviews so you might see me pop up on uh, clapperltd.co.uk and also check out my facebook group island film geeks where i'm looking to get some just some fun comments going on award season stuff so we'll see you there um yeah that's it for us. Thank you for tuning into our special episode where we've uh, sort of reviewed our Soderbergh project in the whole. Um, join us back here on Friday, just a couple days from the release of this for episode 155. You will be able to take part in our first episode in the Liam Neeson's Planes, Trains and Automobiles month. We will be talking about Commuter. So we hope you have an excellent couple days and we will... See you soon.